Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We thank you for this book of Romans. We thank you uh, for uh, the way that you have uh, spoken uh, to us uh, through this book uh, over the weeks past. And we pray that you continue to do that tonight uh, as we have heard it read uh, and as we uh, consider it now together. Uh, may your spirit be working among us. Uh, may you be uh, um, uh, uh, drawing us to, to the Lord Jesus. Uh, may you be opening our eyes uh, to the wonderful things that you have done for us in him. Uh, may you be holding us uh, and uh, enabling us to stand firmly uh, in him. Uh, and may you uh, be encouraging us uh, to help each other press on uh, in Christ. And so we commit this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Networking is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, isn't it? And I'm not just talking about computer networks. There's social networks, business networks, all kinds of people trying to build all kinds of networks for all kinds of reasons. And so Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all these other tools are really popular. You go to a conference, any kind of conference, and what do you see? Business cards flying all over the place, right? As people are trying to exchange contact with each other, change information uh, so that people can contact each other and keep those networks and grow those networks. And the Apostle Paul was someone who was very well networked even before all this started. Uh, he was well networked with his network of churches, and we shall see from Romans 16, he was networked well with the church in Rome, even though he, was never, he had never been there yet. But before we do that, as I said just now, we're going to review the whole letter that we're finally coming to an end to. At the beginning of the letter, in Romans 1, Paul spoke about the gospel. The gospel was promised beforehand, chapter 1, verse 2, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, is in the Old Testament. And what's the gospel about? It's about, verse 3, it's concerning his son. It's about Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. And it's concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He's a rightful Messiah by descent from David. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead. God raised Him from the dead and declared Him powerfully to be the Son of God. And Paul's job was to, verse 5 of chapter 1, bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. That He was, he was to preach the gospel to all the nations so that people will trust in Jesus and therefore obey Him as Lord. The obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from faith. Trust in Him, and therefore obey Him as Lord. And Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, because it was, verse 16, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, and then for the Greek. Jew, Gentile, both need the gospel. And we need saving because, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in the rest of chapters 1 to 3, we see how ungodly, how sinful we really are. We see that God judges justly, whether we are Jew or Gentile. And the justice of God means that in and of ourselves, we would be condemned because that is what we deserve. And so in chapter 3, verse 9, and 10, we read that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, and that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one righteous, either Jew or Gentile. How can we be saved? Well, chapter 3, verse 21 tells us that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is a righteousness, a way of being right with God, that doesn't come by obeying the law. Although it says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament talks about it. And how has it come to us? Well, it comes to us, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, for all who believe. It comes to us by faith. Faith is the instrument by which we receive this righteousness. For all have sinned, verse 22, there is no distinction whether you're Jew or Gentile. All have sinned, verse 23 now, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Being justified means being declared not guilty in the courtroom of heaven, being declared to be righteous, and Paul says it's a gift that is given to you. You're justified by 
by grace. Because God's been kind to you in a way you don't deserve. It's a gift. And how does that gift paid for? How does it come? It comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is God's great act of rescue through the act of a judgment. And that has come to us through a great act of judgment on Jesus, isn't it? Because verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood is by his death, and a propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away anger. So Jesus died taking the anger of God against our sin in order that God's wrath, God's anger is satisfied that we might be redeemed, that we might be rescued from our sins. And so that great act of rescue, that great act of judgment in the cross of Jesus is what rescues us, enables us to be declared righteous, and we get it, that gift, by faith, by trusting in him. And so in chapter 4 we see that both for Jew and Gentile, the only way to be righteous with God is, is by faith. Even Abraham, the ancestor of the Jews, he was justified by faith, not by works. Verse 3 The scripture says, he quotes the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And those who believe God's promises, like Abraham, God counts them as righteous. We are justified by faith. And so chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer God's enemies because God has declared us righteous. And so through Jesus, by faith, We now stand in grace. We look forward to the glory of God that is going to be revealed in the future. Whereas before, our future held God's judgment, God's wrath. Now, our future holds glory. We are headed for good things. And even though we suffer now, we know that God is using it to change us. So that whatever happens, we know that God loves us because Jesus died for us. And so in the second half of chapter 5, we see that this Jesus, this one man, brought life to many by his one great act of obedience. Just like in the past, Adam, one man, brought death to many by his one great act of disobedience. And the law is not a solution to the problem of sin. The law was there to make it, show it up, to make it explicit to make it seem how bad it is. What really gives us eternal life is grace, God's kindness to us that we don't deserve. And so someone might ask in chapter 6 verse 1, well, in that case, shall we go and sin more so there'll be more grace? And the answer, of course, is no. Because when we come to Christ in faith, we, we die to sin. Spiritually, we were made one with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's how he was saved in the first place. And because that is the truth of who, who we are and where we are, then we must live that way. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. We must offer ourselves to God, not to sin. Sin is not our boss anymore. God is. And sin was a lousy boss anyway, because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 23. Or take another illustration, chapter 7. We used to be married to the law. But marriage is annulled by death. Marriage is till death do us part. And we died with Christ. So we are no longer under the law. We are no longer married to the law. And the law which stirred up our passions. Instead we are now free to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Does it mean that the law was bad? The law itself was sinful? No, no, no. There's nothing bad about the law. Verse 7 of chapter 7. The problem is not the law. The problem is the sinful human heart. The law is good. It's delightful. The problem is that we are sinful. The law arouses our sinfulness. And so the, the, I mean, the good thing about it is that sin has shown up to be the terrible enslaving thing it is and it causes us to cry out to God for, for rescue from this terrible situation. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, there is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, 
It's not in our place. We don't live in this fleshly way anymore. We don't set our minds on the things of the flesh, our sinful nature anymore. Instead, God's Spirit leads us to holiness. He enables us to know God as our Father. To bear with suffering now, knowing there is much greater glory to come. He helps us pray, verse 26 of chapter 8, interceding for us with groans that are too deep for words when we don't know what to say. And we know that in all things, verse 28, God works for the good of those who love Him. He knew us before the world began. He chose us, He predestined us to become like Christ, to be conformed to His image, to be like Him in character, to reign with Him in glory, thus fulfilling His plan for humankind. And those He predestined, He also called through the proclamation of the gospel. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. It's a future, it's a future thing, but it's written in the past tense. So sure is it that nothing, nothing, nothing can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet in the midst of this joy, of those wonderful things that God has done for us, Paul is also suffering excruciating pain in chapter 9, because he is sad that many of his fellow Israelites were not saved. And it's not as if God's promises failed. It's just that not everyone in Israel is chosen to be in the, in the true Israel. And who comes in? Well, in the end that's God's choice. He is God and we are not in a position to talk back to him. As far as God's sovereignty goes, everything is according to plan. As far as human responsibility goes, we're in chapter 10 now, the Israelites are responsible for their rejection of Christ. Because they wanted to pursue a righteousness that comes from works, from obeying the law, and they missed the real righteousness that comes from Christ. And instead, many Gentiles come in. Does this mean God has rejected his people, chapter 11? No. He's always kept a small remnant, a number who are chosen, who are truly his, chosen by grace, while the others are hardened. And so for now, the gospel is bearing more fruit among the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous so that in the end, they will want to come in because the Gentiles have got their Messiah. And eventually, many more Jews will be saved as well. And all this is from God's mercy. And all this is for God's glory. And so in light of God's mercies, chapter 12, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That is the way we worship Him. And that is expressed in all those different things we see from chapter 12 onwards. The way we think needs to be changed from the way the world thinks about things to the way God thinks about things. As body parts of the body of Christ, we are to serve with whatever gifts that we have been given. We are to genuinely love one another. We are to live in harmony with one another. We are never to take revenge, but make sure that we are at peace with each other wherever possible. We are to submit to the authorities, chapter 13, because they are put there by God. We are to get rid of evil practices, sexual immorality and drunkenness and quarreling and jealousy. In chapter 14, those who are strong because they have understood the areas where we have freedom should not look down on the weak who don't understand but are seeking to honor Christ in response to what he's done for them by obeying laws that are outdated. They shouldn't force them to comply with the freedom that we have because they might cause them to go against what they are convinced what God wants them to act and therefore cause them to sin. Rather, they should act in love toward them and even give up their rights for the sake of their brother's salvation. And they should do that, chapter 15, following the example of Christ, who gave up his rights for us. And so the strong and the weak should welcome and accept one another. Jewish Christians, in particular, should bear in mind that the coming in of the Gentiles is not something bad, it's actually a fulfillment of, of God's promises to their ancestors. The fact that Christ came to the Jews, in fact, Christ came to the Jews so that God's promises to Abraham to bless the nations through his offspring would come true. And the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. And so Paul was made an apostle of the Gentiles so he could figuratively offer them up to God as a sacrifice. Just like he told us all to offer our bodies to God at the start of the section. And so he did the work of an apostle to the Gentiles. He brought the gospel to where it had never gone before. 
He wanted the Romans to help him and support him as he visited them and he went on to Spain. At first he was taking collection for the poverty-stricken Jewish Christians in Jerusalem from the Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia. Because as the, Jew, as the Gentiles share in the spiritual blessings of the Jews, they owed it to share their material blessings with them. Paul is now winding down in chapter 16. And there are five main sections in this chapter. First of all, there's a commendation of Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. There's greetings to a whole lot of people in Rome in verses 3 to 16. There's a warning against false teachers in verses 17 to 20. There are greetings from Paul's co-workers in Corinth from verse 21 to 23. And finally, there's a doxology, an exclamation of praise to the glory of God in verses 25 to 27. We'll look at each of them in turn. First of all, a note of commendation for a lady named Phoebe, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Phoebe was based in Kencray, the town about eight miles uh, from Corinth, where Paul was based when he wrote this letter. And so he des- and he describes it well. First of all, verse one as a sister. Right, that's the first. That's the first thing about all our relationships with each other, isn't it? We are brothers and sisters. That's the that's the primary thing. She's a fellow believer. She's part of the family. And then in verse one again, she is a servant of the church. Or possibly a deacon of the church at Kencray, right? The word can mean servant. It is someone who serves, in a, can, be, can use in a general sense, someone who serves. The uh, word deacon also means servant. So it can be, could be in an in official technical sense. More often it's the former, usually it's the former, but, uh, and so that's why most translations translate it this way, including ours, but it could be the latter. Uh, if it's servant, then verse 2 sits nicely because it explains how she serves. If she's a deacon, then in addition to what it says in verse 2, she's probably got other church duties. Uh, we don't know for sure, but from hints from the New Testament early church practice uh, indicate that deacons had charge of visitation of the sick, relief for the poor, uh, and possibly some financial oversight. Either way, Phoebe was, verse 2, a patron of many, the end of verse 2, including Paul. What's a patron? A patron or a benefactor is someone who helps others, okay? uh, often in a financial kind of way. Uh, oftentimes, these, these patrons will help foreigners you know, with housing and finance, help them negotiate with the authorities, etc. Uh, and so in all likelihood, Phoebe is this rich lady who uses her riches and her abilities to serve God's people. And she was a great help to many people, including Paul himself. And now she is going to Rome, perhaps even carrying this letter, and he wants the Roman church to look after her. And so Paul is writing this bit as kind of like an introduction to her, because back in those days, you know, she turned up in church, they can't just call the, you know, the Ken Crane church or the Corinthian church and say, you know, who's this person, huh? you send, you know, what she like, and you know. No. So what do people do when they go to another place? They get a letter of commendation. Uh, and now Phoebe is going to Rome, uh, for whatever reason we don't know, and she needs hospitality. Paul writes about her. And she's one of those who helped so many people uh, back in her context. And now she's going to go and be helped by others of God's people whom she doesn't even know. And that's the way it is, isn't it? Uh, when I went to England for a conference a few years ago, I stayed with people I had never met before. They were wonderfully hospitable to me because I was there to to a Christian conference to learn about Christ and, to, and as a servant of Christ and I stayed in their house and you know, it was, it was lovely. Um, we were introduced through Sam Aubrey whom some of you know and those who don't know you'll meet him in August. Right. Their son had been to Smack on a mission team a few years earlier. Their hospitality enabled me to learn at the conference and our hospitality to the mission team enabled more mission and evangelism to be done so both ways the work of the gospel increased because people were being hospitable. Now, in a few days, we'll have Rob and Alice Brown and the team from Durham here. They would have served lots of people in Durham. I'm sure they've been hospitable to many university students, overseas students who have come to 
to Durham from many countries, and now we in turn are going to be showing them and their team hospitality as they serve among us. But they're not here for a holiday, they're here to serve, and they are keen to serve. Of course, before we said they can come, we have to check them out. Didn't ask them to bring letters of commendation, but we're able to make phone calls and talk to people and find out who they are and what they're like. And, you know, and so on Tuesday, we will welcome them and the team they bring in a manner worthy of the saints. We look after each other as God's people. And we are to promote the gospel by showing hospitality to those who come in the name of Christ. Well, not randomly. Anyone turn up and say, oh, you look after me, you know, I'm serving Jesus. All right, let's be wise, not naive. So the kind of hospitality, that kind of hospitality that we'll be showing to the Durham team is based on, they are people we trust, based on recommendations of people we trust. Right. Networking, well. The Bible was into networking, even before it became trendy. Furthermore, Phoebe is a great example to us as a patron. Uh, she is someone who used the wealth that God gave her for the sake of his people. Uh, she is an example of what Paul commanded in chapter 12, verse 6. And he's talking about all the different gifts we've been given. And he says, if your gift is to contribute, then do it in generosity. I know a number of people like that. Uh, there's one lady in our smack ACA community, for example. God has given her wealth, and she wants to use it for ministry. She always comes up to the staff and says, okay, what ministry needs money now? You know, how can I contribute? Now, some people come and say, I've got time, what can I do? That's fantastic. She comes and says, okay, I've got money, where can I give? Right? Both are important, isn't it? Yeah. Now, not everyone can be a patron. Right? You have to have lots of money to do that. But that's the case with all the gifts, isn't it? All of us can do some things that other people can't do. If you're gifted with a fit and healthy body, then make sure you help with the logistics and carrying the chairs and putting them up and, you know, putting things away. And if you're gifted with being able to explain things to others, then get trained as a word minister. If your gift is having lots of money, then be a patron. Now, all of us help out in practical ways. All of us speak the word to each other. All of us give money for ministry. But some of us can do one of those things even more than the, than the usual. That's you. Look for opportunities to do it. The next section uh, is where Paul speaks about... Well, reverse, the next section is where Paul gives lots of greetings to lots of people. In fact, 26 people are named here. More evidence of his networking for Jesus. And in his first greeting, we meet two more ministry heroes. Right? And this time it's a couple, Prisca and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila. Uh, now, let me tell you about them. Uh, we know from Acts 18 that Aquila was a Jew and Prisca was his wife. Uh, her, uh, the other name for Prisca is Priscilla. Right? Um, uh, and like Paul, they were tent makers by trade. Uh, so when Paul first went to Corinth, remember he, he, he worked and he worked as a tent maker. So he stayed with them and he worked in their tent making business. Uh, and they got to know them. Right. Uh, while they're in, so that now you, they were in Corinth at the time. You remember a few weeks ago I talked to you about how the church in Rome uh, had suffered. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome because um, there was some persecution there. Right now, Priscilla and Aquila, one of those guys, got kicked out of Rome. That's how they ended up in Corinth. That's where they met Paul. Right, so they met Paul in Corinth. Uh, later on in 1 Corinthians 16:19, we gather they are in Asia because when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he sends them greetings from uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, from Asia, back to their old church in Corinth. And now they're back in Rome. Seems like persecution finished, got let them come back. These guys have gone back. And once again, Paul sends greetings to them. Verse 3 and 4. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Notice how he describes them. First of all, they are his fellow workers in Christ. Right? They work together with him. Not just in tent making, but in gospel ministry. And not only do they work with him, they risk their lives for him. Such was their love, their loyalty, their commitment to Paul as their fellow worker in Christ, that, that they were willing to do that. And Paul was very grateful to them. And I tell you who else is very grateful to them. It's the Gentile churches, because these are Jewish Christians who are risking their life for the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And so the Gentile churches are very grateful to them as well. The other thing you notice about Prisca and Aquila is that they are hosts to a church. Verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. You see, in those days, churches always met in people's houses. No, no public church buildings. Can't even get a shop house in those days. Right. Uh, so you see that, who's got a big house and we go and meet there. And the church gets big, cannot fit, okay, find another house and some people go off and start a new house. Like, you know, right? uh, now notice Paul doesn't call it a cell group just because it meets in a house. Right? It's a church. Gather around God's people, gather around his word. Theologically, they are a church. It's quite possible also that when Paul later greets the uh, uh, family of Aristobulus in verse 10 and the family of Narcissus in verse 11, and even more strongly, the people in verse 14, all that list of names, and the brothers who are with them, uh, and verse 15, that whole list of names, and all the saints who are with them, uh, it's quite possible that he's actually talking about different churches that make up the Christian community at Rome. Uh, even at the beginning of Romans, he doesn't say to the church at Rome, he talks about to the saints at Rome, was it? To the saints at Rome, or to the, uh, what does he call? To those at Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Right? So maybe there's a few, quite a few churches here. Uh, that he's writing to. And if so, then, then we're not dealing with one church, but a number. So, anyway, Prisca and Aquila, they are fellow workers with Paul in Christ. Not only they risk their lives for him, now they are back in Rome, they are hosts of the church that meets in their home. And let me tell you, it can be quite a bit of trouble opening your home for the church to use. Right. It's actually quite a lot of work. Um, before ACA had a building, we used to meet in people's homes. And that was a substantial commitment for the people. Right. Many of our growth groups meet in homes. Some of our growth groups meet here or in ACA, but some of them meet in homes and, and depend on people's hospitality each week. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Oh, it might be easy for a while, having people come each week, but it can get tiring. It's not just a one-off project. No. Churches meet every week. House needs to be rearranged every week after the 50 people come. It'd be cleaned up every week. Can't just disappear one week because the whole church is affected. You go away. Hey, where are you going to meet? Right? Uh, that kind of ministry can become burdensome and repetitious. Sounds fun at first. Hey, you'll come to my house. Right? But after a few months, the glamour wears off and it's hard work. Ministries like that. In the first century, it wasn't even just the hassle. It's also the issue of being caught. In times of persecution, not only has the church been in trouble, you've been in trouble for hosting it. But Prisca and Aquila go ahead anyway, willing to open their house for the gospel, use their resources for the kingdom, even when it's tiring, even when it's dangerous. And the other thing, of course, we saw their willingness to put their neck on the line for the gospel. I'm going to ask you if you've risked your lives for the people in your gospel ministry team or your, on your cell group. So they can further the gospel. Chances are you haven't because, well, unlikely that you're called to do that. Maybe you are. Uh, if you need to, would you? Priscilla and Aquila did. And they did it together. Phoebe, she was probably single or widowed. But Prisca and Aquila, they were a couple. And as a couple together, they worked for Christ in addition to making tents. And as a couple together, they put their necks on the line for Paul and his ministry. And together, they hosted the church. Now, married couples who are here, it's fine for you to be doing different ministries. If you've got different gifts, that's, that's fine. It's fantastic. But think about what you can do in ministry together. Or see the different things that you do as partnerships together. Think about how you can take risks, make sacrifices together for the sake of the gospel. Be a team. Prisca. Have a look at the other people Paul agrees. Verse 5. There is Epinatus, first convert, convert, convert in Asia. Uh, there is Mary, verse 6, who has worked hard for you. Don't know what she did. Uh, maybe she prays this language similarly. You know, Epaphras struggled in prayer for those in Colossae. They're far away, and she's far away from the Romans. She's working hard for them, so maybe she's been praying for them. Uh, verse 7 is an interesting one. Greek, Adronicus and Junia. Who are they? Well, they are my kinsmen. They are the relatives of Paul. They are my fellow prisoners. They have been in prison together with him. They were in Christ before me. They were Christians before Paul became a Christian. And it says they are well known to the apostles. 
That can be translated in two ways. It could be that they are well known to the apostles, as it's translated here, which is probably right, I think. But it could also be translated are well known among the apostles. Um, if the other translations are right, and they're well known among the apostles, then it doesn't mean there are more apostles of Jesus Christ than you've got the twelve apostles to the Jews, to Israel, and then you've got Paul, the apostles of the Gentiles, and then you've got, oh, Priscilla and Aquila, 13 and 14 on this side, right? And not Priscilla, but uh, uh, Andronicus and Junia, 13 and 14. No, it's not saying that, because the word apostle means sent one. Apostles of Jesus Christ are sent by Jesus Christ with the authority of Jesus Christ, like Peter, James, and John, and Paul. Uh, apostle is also used for people who are sent by the church. Uh, missionaries were sent by the church to go and do mission work. Uh, and so if, the, if these guys are famous among the apostles, then, then they are famous missionaries. Or if they are famous in the eyes of the apostles, uh, then either the apostles or the missionaries think highly of these guys. Uh, that's Andronicus and Junia. Uh, who else is there? Verse 8, there's Am Ampliatus. How is he described? Beloved in the Lord. Urbanus, fellow worker in Christ. Herodian, Stachys, beloved. Eplus, approved in Christ. Herodian, kinsman. Relative, huh? Must remember the relatives. Um, Tryphena, Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Persis, worked hard in the Lord. Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother has been a mother to me as well. All, and then all the other ones where the church meets in their homes and other names that he mentions. Right? What do you see here? A lot of warm greetings, isn't it? And warm greeting and say, wow, this person works hard in the Lord. This person has done this, this. Paul knows all these people in Rome even though he hasn't been there. He's worked hard in his networking. Even before Facebook. Now, what can we say about these guys? What do we notice about them? Well, we notice there are both men and women, both Jews and Gentiles. And many of them, both men and women, both Jews and Gentiles, are involved in ministry and are prominent in the church. Right. First, ministry in the early church was never confined to just men. Men and women together are meant to be involved in serving Christ and are fellow workers in the gospel. Now, Paul talks elsewhere about different roles for men and women in the church. At 1 Timothy 2, for example, women are not to take authority or teach in a mixed congregation. But that is not in any way in Paul's mind meant to discourage women from being involved in ministry. He's encouraging them. If you think ministry is only what I do, then yeah, of course we've got a problem. But ministry is much, much, much broader than, than leading and teaching in a mixed congregation. It mustn't concentrate on what we can't do, but what we can do and what we need to do. We've got nine women listed in this list. Five of them are commended for their work in the law. And ministry is just as much women's work as it is men's work. And probably if you actually look around, more ministry is being done by women than by men. Actually. And so here in Smack and ACA, we want to encourage our sisters in ministry as well as our brothers. And again, as I look around, I see many women doing all kinds of ministries that are biblically appropriate. I just want to encourage you in that. Keep it up. Do it more. Marianne was saying to me the other day that she thinks we need another full-time worker, female one. I think she's right. And there's so much more ministry that needs to be done among the women of our congregations, in the universities we're trying to reach, even without thinking about the opportunities about with the children and the youth, both here and in the schools. And We need more women in ministry. Yeah, we need more men in ministry as well, but that's another issue. Right? Both ways, we need to keep encouraging each other acknowledging each other's labors. And if Paul was writing to us, I know he would say, these number of women, these number of men, my fellow workers in Christ, work hard for the gospel. Paul greets his fellow workers. He acknowledges their work in the Lord. Now, in addition to Paul greeting them, he also wants them to greet each other. Verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So I see we've already had our greeting time. So next week at greeting time, you know what to do, huh? It's okay if you want to kiss each other. Yeah. Right. But as long as it's a holy kiss, all right? 
Hold the kiss, huh? If not, then shake hands, huh? Right? Seriously, Paul greeted these guys. Notice how Paul greets these guys, right? He greets them, and as part of his greeting, he shows his appreciation for their ministry, or shows his his confidence in their being chosen. And all the, you, know, you see what he's saying? It's not, it's not just, hello, greeting time, but it's actually showing a greeting with appreciation uh, and with understanding. When was the last time you greeted someone and showed your appreciation to them for their hard work among us? When was the last time you greeted someone and said, thank you for setting up all these things before I came? Uh, or we told your growth group leader how much you appreciate their work in leading the group and caring for the people. You know, it's a lot of work being a growth group leader. Huh? Preparation for the Bible study is a lot of work and then you've got to you know, both leaders got to follow up people, talk to people, look after them. It's, it's a big job. Make sure you greet them and thank them. What about the music team? You appreciate their hard work in practicing and leading the songs. You greet the people who are organizing the next guest night and thank them for working so hard so we've got a nice guest night that we can bring our friends to to hear the gospel. Thank your brother or sister who brought some tidbits so we can eat after church and, and uh, have fellowship. Now, of course, they're not doing it for you. Right? They're doing it for God. That's why they're not expecting you to come and thank them. They're expecting their reward from Him, but you should still greet them and thank them and acknowledge them and appreciate them like Paul did. Greet each other. Greet your fellow workers. Recognize their work in the world. And then there's greetings from the other churches. Paul sends greetings from all the churches of Christ. Right? Roman churches are acknowledged they are accepted by the churches in other places. There's mutual recognition, mutual fellowship. And Paul is keen to build goodwill with the churches that belong to Christ, with each other. And so he wants the churches to do networking as well between the churches. And so the churches send their greetings uh, to each other. Well, all that's nice, warm, positive stuff. huh? And then Paul works, moves on to the next part, which he talks about the negative things that need to be said. And so here he's got his networks. He uses that networks to give them this word of warning. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. I remember how he told the Christians in Rome to accept one another despite their differences. Well, that is not what you do with false teachers. With people who are coming in with wrong doctrines, with people who are speaking a message that is different from the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people cause divisions, they create obstacles, they create things that, that cause people to stumble, and they're doing it against the teaching to the Romans that the Romans have been taught. They're doing it contrary to the gospel that Paul so painstakingly laid out in this letter. And so Paul is warning them against these people. He says in verse 18, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So watch out for them. Watch out. Because these Romans, they were, they, were, they were good Christians. They were faithful. They were obedient. Uh, now they had some issues and problems, but what church doesn't have? Uh, Paul had never been there before, but he knew their reputation. They loved Jesus. They wanted to obey. He knew both sides of the Jew, Gentile, strong, weak kind of debate. He says in verse 19, Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. They're good guys. But they might have been a bit naive. Uh, they might have been a bit undiscerning. So when a false teacher comes, they can't easily recognize him. And when a false teacher comes, oh, this is how to be wise. And Paul doesn't want them to simply follow. So he continues his, your obedience is no, I rejoice over you, but, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He doesn't want them to experience false teaching. He wants them to know the truth. And I think that's one reason why he wrote this letter. He wants them to be wise as to what is good. He wants to remind them again of the gospel and show its implications. He wants them to hold firmly to that and not easily be led astray. Because, you see, unlike in many of his letters, he doesn't tackle the false teachers head on. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they haven't come to Rome yet. He's just warning them to watch out. They're going to come. How does he do that? He clearly expounds the gospel so you can tell the false one is fake. 
I'm told that when people are trained to spot counterfeit currency, they're not so much taught about all the different characteristics about counterfeit money, but about the real one. They keep on studying and keep handling the, the real and genuine money so many times that, 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 that when they get a counterfeit one, they know it feels different. And I think that's what Paul is doing for the Romans here. He's laying out the true gospel for them. And in God's providence, this letter to the Romans can still have that same function for us today. You want to be wise about what is good? You want to grow in your understanding of the gospel? You, you want us to be a church that's not easily deceived? Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this letter. And it'll help us be like that. We live in a dangerous world, friends. Satan will try and bring us down with all kinds of things, and one of them is false teaching. But we pray that by God's grace, the work of the Spirit in our hearts, and studying this letter of the last couple of years has helped us as a community to prophylactically defend against that. So as we know the gospel better, its implications better and better, then we are more and more equipped to dismiss false teaching uh, whenever it comes. So that we are wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. But the fight will not be long. For the Holy Spirit, through Paul, makes us a promise in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Back in Genesis 3, God had promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent would in turn crush his heel. And that came true for us in Jesus. Jesus Christ was the offspring of the woman. He defeated Satan and yet was killed in doing so. He is the one who crushed the serpent's head, but whose heel was crushed in the process. And now we share in his victory. And the God of peace, Paul says, the God who makes peace by overcoming and destroying and crushing his enemies, he will soon crush Satan under our feet. Because we share in the victory of Christ. And on that day, the battle will be over. False teaching will be gone. Evil will be gone. Creation which has been groaning until now will be set free from its bondage to decay. We will receive our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We will be transformed into the image of Christ and share in His glory. And forevermore we will enjoy the wonder of God's undeserved kindness to us in Christ. And the enormity of the grace that He has extended to us now will be, will be seen for what it is. And until then, that grace that redeemed us is the grace that keeps us. And so Paul's prayer in verse 10 is not just a bye-bye. It's a, uh, uh, it's a, it's, it, it's a far more uh, bigger one. Uh, sorry, the end of verse 20 rather. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a prayer for them. That God's grace will hold them and keep them. And that's what we pray for each other too. Isn't it? We'll be held and kept by God's grace. So, once again, you might have thought this was the end of the letter. Could have stopped here. But, no, that's not the case. Now, there are a number of people in Paul's team who want to send greetings to Romans. You know, Paul's kind of like, what happening? Oh, hey, sending my greetings, my greetings. So, here, they, because they're in the network as well. All right? Who have we got messages from? Right, now, just now, is greetings to, uh, to all the different people. Right? Now, it's greetings from other people in the team. Right? Who are the people? Well, the verse 21, there's Timothy, my fellow worker. There's Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Right? And then there's the greeting from the scribe. There's a technical word, amenusis, which simply means the guy who takes dictation. Right? When Paul is talking, you say, oh, this, 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 this. The guy's writing it down, writing it down, writing it down. Everyone's giving greetings now. So, oh, okay, I, I Joshua, who wrote this, that also give you my greetings in the law. Right? So he's putting his greetings in as well. And then verse 22, there's Gaius. Oh, that's 20, that was 22. Verse 23, there's Gaius. Gaius is the guy whose house the, 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 the church in Corinth meet. Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you. And then there's Erastus, the city treasurer. And then there's Quartus, um, who is our brother. Uh, send the greetings as well. So they've got the people on this side sending greetings to the, to the Roman church. And incidentally, when you think about all the people you mentioned in, 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 uh, in, uh, in, in Romans... You don't expect many to be found in archaeology, do you? Right? Because they're just normal people. I mean, imagine 4,000 
4,000 AD, uh, if the Lord hasn't come back yet, and they're digging up KL, but how many people from our congregation, or even you put Smack 1, Smack 2, ACA all together, how many people do you think they'll find archaeological evidence for? Uh, probably none. Right? But the Corinthian guys, they scored one. Right, have a look at this. There you go. Uh, that's an inscription that was found in 1929 on a pavement in Corinth. It's dated round about the time of this letter. Uh, and the inscription translates as, Erastus in returns for his edilship, that is, role as treasurer, laid this at his own expense. Interesting, isn't it? Kenawan lah. One of these guys got his inscription there. We can see it now. Okay, that's just for your fun. Right. What do we learn from this greeting? Well, for one thing, we see that Paul worked in a team. Now, he always did. Sometimes we get this picture of Paul as this lone ranger missionary, you know, bravely going, where no one's gone before, all by himself. You know. He's actually a team player. Right? That's, that's kind of like the Norman gospel. Now, there might be exceptions, but that's kind of like the Norman gospel work, isn't it? Right? We need each other. We're teams. We work together in teams uh, to serve the Lord Jesus. Well, Paul could have ended his letter about three times by now. Uh, he, he could have stopped here. In fact, actually, he even said Amen at the end of chapter 15. Look at that. In chapter 15, and he went, Amen. Then he started again. All right? But uh, here, here comes the real ending. I think what he's doing, there's all places where he can end, but he's keeping this one right to the end because this is, why he, this is the thing he really wants to end on. Right? Uh, because it's so theologically rich, and because it connects back to what he said right at the beginning. Let me read it to you, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic witness has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Long sentence, huh? Very long sentence, a bit hard to understand. Uh, so why don't we just stop for a minute and let's pull it out. It's because we want to give thanks to God for the same thing, don't we? Uh, we need to understand what he's talking about. Okay? In the end, what's he saying? In the end, you pull it down to right basics. It's saying, now to him, who is the him? That's the beginning of verse 25. Who is the him? He tells the him in verse 27. That is the only wise God. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, that's the big thing. Then you double click the hymn, the only wise God. You double click that, and he wants to tell us a little bit more about God, why he's to be glorified. And here's what he says This is the God who, verse 25, is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The word strengthen there means to keep you firm, to support you, to stop you from falling. He, God, is the one who can keep you, to stop you from falling down. And how does he do it? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That is, God keeps us in the very same way that he saved us in the first place. That is, through the gospel. That is why Romans is such a big exposition of the gospel and its implications. We are saved by the gospel. We are kept by the gospel. The gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. And this gospel, through which we are not only saved, but which we are kept, as we keep on hearing the gospel and keep on believing the gospel, that is, used to be a secret. It was a secret for long ages, the end of verse 25, but verse 26 has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, that is the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament now is finally, rightly understood as pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament before, I couldn't understand how does it all work. And suddenly when Jesus comes, it's declared, the mystery is open. Wow, you can see it's all about Jesus. And God has commanded, verse 26, that this be preached, made known to the nations, that Gentiles know about the gospel that even is there in the Old Testament. And it's preached. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. The gospel is preached to the Gentiles, to the nations, so that people will believe in Jesus and therefore obey him as Lord. See, it's exactly what he says right at the beginning, isn't it? It's just a different way. And so the gospel that was preached by Paul was the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen the whole exposition of it throughout Romans. 
And it's that gospel through which the Romans were saved and through which the Romans were able to stand. That is the gospel through which we are saved and through which we are able to stand. And it has to be that gospel, no other gospel. It's gospel of grace because it is the gospel of grace through which God is to be glorified. If it was grace plus works, then we might say, eh, it's part of partly my goodness as well. But it's not. It's not my God gets all the glory because it's all of grace. And so forever and ever we will wonder and be thankful for and give honor to God. And God will forever be glorified in Jesus Christ because who he is and what he has done, his character will be so clearly seen. And that in the end is what Romans is about. That is what the gospel is about. That is why Jesus died. That is why we exist. That is why we are saved. So that God would be glorified. And so to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you for your, your, your rich kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have uh, so clearly given it to us in this book of Romans that we can see and understand not only our own sinfulness, but what you have done for us in him. Giving him to die, live that perfect life that we could never live and die for us in our place so that we can be justified by faith in him and as a response to that be obedient to him as our Lord Father we thank you for your wisdom we thank you that that gospel is what has saved us and that gospel is what you use to keep us to strengthen us and enable us to stand and to stand firm unto the end and so we pray that you help us always to hold fast to that gospel. Help us to be people who are not um, swayed by false teaching, false teachers, uh, but be people who are wise with regards to what is good and innocent with regards to what is evil. That we may know the gospel and its implications so well that when false gospels and false teachers come, we are able to recognize we pray that you help us to be people who, in response to what you have done for us, truly um, give our lives as a living sacrifice to you, and truly love our brothers and sisters, who are hospitable and caring, and who seek to do whatever we can uh, to further your kingdom, and to work out uh, all the different ways uh, that, that, that we do that, to be a living at peace with one another, uh, to be living in ways that that reflect uh, that, 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 that uh, kindness that you've shown us. To be people who are uh, strong in our understanding and yet willing to um, let go of our rights uh, for the sake of the weak. Uh, to be people who are encouraging, who greet one another and show our appreciation to each other uh, for the partnership that we share together in making Christ known. Father, we pray that um, you'll continue to mold us and change us, uh, that we be more and more like that. We pray that we be like that, not just as individuals, uh, but as a church together. And we pray uh, that, most of all, Lord, um, that we would see Jesus more and more clearly, that we would follow him more and more, uh, and that we would appreciate more and more the grace that you've shown us in him, so that more and more we glorify you uh, and that we do that not only now uh, but for the rest of our lives and not only for the rest of our lives uh, but for all eternity uh, giving praise and thanks to you uh, for the grace that you've shown us we pray these things Father in Jesus name Amen